0: You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. We saw that not only did the demons fear him, but that the people who witnessed this miracle and heard about it uh, in, in that area also feared him. And they, in fact, wanted him to leave their region. And flowing from that, like how we learned about this fear that the demons had of Jesus and the fear that sinful men had of Jesus, we considered together how both unbelievers and believers are to fear the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Unbelievers are to fear his judgment and wrath unless they repent and turn to him in faith and submission. And believers are to fear him with a deep respect and reverence and awe of his majesty and glory as the Son of God. But this week, so that's what we looked at last week. But this week, I want to do my best to highlight another truth from this text. And it is the truth that Jesus is the great savior of sinners, that he is the great liberator of slaves. He is the one who can make us new. And real quick, we can do that, right? We can see another thing in this text because though. any any passage of scripture has only one legitimate meaning. There are many different things that a single passage can teach us, right? Just bear that in mind. Every passage only has one big meaning. Verses can't mean multiple things, but there can be different applications or different implications, multiple, that we see in the same text. And I believe that this text, uh, in addition to showing us the unrivaled power of Christ, also gives us a picture of salvation. I think that there are clear parallels between what literally and historically happened in this narrative, there are parallels with that and spiritual realities uh, that are very broad. Uh, in the demoniac, I think we're going to see a picture of the unregenerate sinner, someone who is bound to sin and in slavery to Satan. In Jesus casting out those demons or the, that, that legion of demons, we're going to see his grace that is given to all whom he desires to give it to. We're going to see his power to save. And in all of it, in this entire narrative, We're going to see that jesus can save even the worst cases right even the most wretched sinner has hope in christ and i don't think that i'm stretching the text to point these things out right and that's because miracles are signs and they point us to spiritual truths and i think that there are a lot of truths for us to see in this passage so with that said there are four things that i want to point out to you from our text this evening Uh, and they all have something to say to each of us and here they are first we're going to consider the pitiful condition of the possessed man, namely that he is a slave to the devil. Second, we're gonna see Jesus by his grace freeing this man from bondage to Satan. Then flowing from that, third, we're gonna look at the compassionate character of Jesus Christ. And then fourthly, we're gonna see the change in the formerly possessed man, and then we'll go into some application. Now, uh, if you would, I know this is something new, Uh, As a sign of respect for our God, if you're able, please stand with me for the reading of his inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, The man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. This is God's word. Let's pray. Holy God, we ask now that you would bless us through the ministry of your word. Help us to be attentive to the word as it's preached. Help me to preach your truth uh, boldly and with zeal and with precision. I ask that you'd give us all hearts that long to learn from you, hearts that are eager to hear about you and your son and what he has done for sinners. As we just sang, Lord, show us Christ. And having learned, I ask that you would grant us hearts that are full of love for Jesus and that desire to make much of him. Glorify yourself, sovereign Lord we ask for this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Now, the context for our passage this evening is the same as last week, right? Nothing has changed. It's the same text. Uh, Jesus and his disciples have just crossed the Sea of Galilee. Jesus has just calmed a huge storm on the sea and gave a great display of, of his power over nature. And now Jesus steps out of that same boat and, is, and, and encounters a man possessed with thousands of of demons. Verse 6 says that the man falls at Jesus' feet, but before that verse, Mark breaks off of the narrative for a moment and gives us information on the state of this man. Um, the outline is a bit similar to what it was last week. Um, and that brings us to the first point that I'd like us to consider, and that is the pitiful or pitiable condition of the possessed man. I'm going to read verses 3 through 5 to you again. It says, he, the possessed man, lived among the tombs And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains. But he rinsed the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. To summarize the state of this man, we can say simply that he is in bondage. He is bound in his sin. He is bound to Satan. What's recorded, us, what's recorded for us here in these few verses is the reality that this man is utterly out of control. He is not in control of himself. He has been taken captive by Satan in a very real and very visible way. He is under the power and authority of the legion of demons that have possessed him. He's not governing his own body. Rather, the demons are controlling his every move. He is utterly dominated by these unclean spirits. He's no match for them. He's been completely overpowered. Again, it's a pitiable condition that this man is in. It's sad, right? And, and don't I don't want you to let the fact that demon possession is scary, right? Don't let that make you blind to the fact that the possessed man is a human being in misery and in bondage. How he came to be possessed, we don't know. But nevertheless... Bear in mind, this is an awful condition for him to be in. He should have our sympathy as we read this text. This possessed man should have our sympathy. But what is the extent of this bondage, right? What's the extent of this? What, what's the extent of this man's slavery to these demons or the devil? Well, first, consider that this man is unclean in a most severe way. Right, let's look at his whole life. First, he's a Gentile, most likely. I'm going with that. Right? He's a Gentile. This is a heavily populated Gentile region. Jews probably didn't do a whole lot of business in the Gerasene area. He's probably a Gentile, which means he's a stranger to the God of Israel. He is not part of the covenant people of God. He lives, again, in a Gentile region, a place full of idolatry and evil practices. It is an unclean place, and he is an unclean Gentile. He lives, our text tells us, among the dead. He dwells among tombs. Right, an unclean place, and nearby is a great herd of pigs, 2,000 of them. This is an unclean area he's in, and to top it off, he has unclean spirits inside of him, on the inside. So both externally, internally, by birth, his region, in every sense of the word, this man is unclean. The Jews of Jesus' day, especially the self-righteous Pharisees, would have avoided this man like the plague. No sympathy for him whatsoever. He is unclean. People wouldn't have wanted anything to do with him at all. Even the Gentiles, right, don't want him around. As our our text tells us, he's a terror to them because of these demons. Matthew chapter 8 in the parallel account says that he was fierce, right? He probably beat people. So they've driven him out of their villages, and now he lives among the dead. He lives among tombs in isolation. Not only that, but verse 15 tells us that once the demons were cast out, this man had his mind restored to him, right? So we're going, what's another aspect of his bondage? Verse 15 says his mind was restored to him once Christ cast the demons out, which tells us that he was under, as he was under the dominion of these demons, he was not sane. This man was insane. He was not able to think clearly or rightly about anything because his every thought was under the sway of Satan. And he harms himself too, doesn't he? Verse 5 says that he was always cutting himself with stones. This man is harming himself on a regular basis, cutting himself, gashing himself open. Again, as he's dominated by these demons, they direct him to do self-harm. And what happens to the pigs in this text when the demons are cast into them, right, you remember they drown, they die, that tells us what the ultimate result of this satanic bondage will be for this man unless there is divine intervention. Death is the result of the bondage that he's in. These demons will eventually drive this man to death if there is no intervention. That is their great goal. You could say that they're toying with him in the meantime, enjoying watching his torment. And I want to point this out to you. I did briefly last week, but but see this. This man cannot save himself. He can't save himself. As we learned last week, demons are much more powerful than human beings. They can sift us like wheat unless God protects us. This man couldn't rid himself of even one demon, much less a legion, which would be up to 6,000 demons. If he could have freed himself from his bondage, I'm sure he would have done so already. I, I, I would imagine at least. But he is absolutely powerless against the forces of darkness. He cannot save himself. And nobody around him can save him either, can they? I'm sure, and again, I'm taking a bit of license here, I'm sure that they tried, the people around him, i sure they tried to help him at first, probably contacted some Gentile exorcists to do some pagan rituals to try and get the demons out, which would have probably made it worse. And when that didn't work, they resorted to tying him up so he couldn't wreak havoc among the people anymore. But that didn't work either, right? So powerful are these demons within him that they caused him to break the metal chains that they would bind him with. No mere humans can save, no mere human means can save this man. None of the attempts of human beings can set him free from the grip of Satan. If there was ever a case that seemed hopeless, it is him. If we would have lived then and saw him, we would have been like, well, that's it for him, I guess. He's overpowered. He is under the control of sin and Satan. He cannot free himself, and no one else around him can free him either. What hope does he have? Apart from divine intervention, he has absolutely no hope for freedom. And this, brothers and sisters, is a picture of the natural man. When I say natural, I mean the unregenerate person. The the person who's still dead in their sins and trespasses. The unbeliever. This is the natural state that we are all born into. This man is an extreme and very literal and visible example of what is spiritually true of all unconverted people. Right? Except just in your average unconverted person. It just doesn't manifest itself so severely and outwardly, but what is spiritually true of him, or rather, literally, literally, invisibly true of him is spiritually true of all unregenerate people, and that may sound like a strong statement, but I say that because of the testimony of scripture regarding our natural state, right, again, what is true of him is true of all who have not yet been set free by Christ, 1 John, chapter 5, verse 19 says this, we know that we are from God, and the whole world, right, that is the unbelieving world, the godless, Christless world system, we know that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The evil one being the devil. In Ephesians chapter 2, the, the apostle Paul says, "...and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, that is the devil." among whom we all once lived. We all followed him at once. In Second Corinthians 4, the Apostle Paul uh, mentions that the God of this world, lowercase g, that's the devil, has blinded people. Right Again, the whole world lies in the power, lies in the grip of the devil. In our natural state, every one of us, we're in the same spiritual condition as this man. We're in slavery to sin and slavery to Satan, under his dominion and under his power. We were all once, and unbelievers still are, in this bondage. And when I say that we were in spiritual bondage, I mean that the unregenerate or unsaved person is unclean in the eyes of God. Right now, we're going to look at some parallels. Unclean in the eyes of God, just like the man in our text, right? Having an unclean spirit inside of us, so to speak, an unclean nature a nature that desires to sin is bent towards sin and rebellion against God and unable to do anything but sin. Right? So hear me, this is bondage. Whenever the Bible talks about us being in bondage to sin and in bondage to Satan, this is what bondage is. It is to not be able to do anything other than that which displeases God. It is bondage to be able to do nothing other than sin. It's spiritual slavery to not have the ability to look to God in faith. It's spiritual slavery to not even desire to be free. Right? And I say that to not even desire to be free because we have no indication in this text that this man expressed any desire to be saved, did he? Nothing. He was utterly dominated by the devil. The same is true for the unregenerate person. Slaves have no will of their own. Rather, they do as their master directs them. And spiritually speaking, the slave is unable to resist the master. He just does as the master bids him. And we've already seen from both John and 1 John and Paul and Ephesians and 2 Corinthians that the unsaved person is a slave to Satan, being under his power and following his lead, unable to resist sin. They are in bondage to sin and Satan. Like the possessed man to... Keep going on this. The sinner in bondage to Satan has a defiled mind. They cannot think clearly or rightly about sin or righteousness, God's law, God's gospel, God Himself. They are spiritually insane, you could say, the unsaved person is. They cannot understand in a spiritually beneficial way the things of God. And again, they have no desire to do so either, right? Because the desire to know God and these other things come only once you've been set free. As Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 7, I believe, the mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. It will not please Him, meaning do do anything pleasing toward Him. Indeed, it cannot. The mind we were born with, the mind of the unregenerate person, does not want to do anything that pleases God, and indeed cannot do anything that pleases God. This is bondage. And the sinner in bondage lives among the dead, don't they? They do not live a real, true life. The unbeliever is surrounded by rottenness and death. The unbeliever is devoid of spiritual life and the good spiritual blessings of God, right? that They're not living in a manner in which they were created to live, which is to know and glorify and enjoy God. And they harm themselves too, don't they? The unregenerate person harms themselves. They may not be consciously aware of it, as I'm sure this possessed man in our text wasn't conscious of most of his actions, but their life of glad and willful sin is really destroying them. Right? It's, it's destroying their souls and leading them to their eternal ruin. And, and that's the goal of Satan. All right? Re- remember that. That's the goal of Satan. Just like the pigs were drowned by the demons, Satan's big goal is the spiritual destruction of human beings. Right? The, the sin that the one in spiritual bondage commits will end in death. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Right? For the wages of sin is death. This is eternal death under the wrath of God. And what's truly sad about the state of lost sinners is that they are in bondage and don't realize it. They're in bondage and don't realize it. So crafty is Satan that he can make slavery appear to be freedom. Let me say that again. So crafty is Satan that he can make slavery appear to be freedom. Those who are most in bondage to sin rarely can see it, can they? Rather, they look at us who are slaves to Christ and say, that's not freedom. They think that they're living their best life often, but their true misery will rear its ugly head from time to time. Hear me. Some of you will remember what life was like before you were converted. Though the unregenerate person can rarely see their own misery, it will rear its head from time to time in their feeling of lostness and they're, they're feeling that something is missing, that there has to be more to life than what they're doing. I personally remember this one. In the night when it's just them alone in their room with just their thoughts, their guilt for sin creeps up on them and pricks their conscience. That they, they, they have a brief recognition from time to time that the world and the sins of the flesh cannot satisfy them in any ultimate way. But then Satan comes along and snatches away those brief moments of clarity. I'm sure you've seen this with unsaved people you've talked to. It seems like maybe something finally got through to them, and then as quick as it seemed to come, it's gone. They are under the power and dominion of the devil. And just like the man in our text, the sinner cannot save himself. There is not enough self-help instruction in this world that can free them from sin and Satan. There is not enough manpower in the world that can redeem them from their spiritual chains. They are powerless in the hands of the evil one. These slaves are in desperate need of the great liberator. You could call him the great abolitionist, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that brings us to our second thought. And that is how Jesus frees this man from slavery. With a a word. The Lord Jesus Christ, by his sovereign power as God, sets the possessed man free. And how does he do it? Very simply, I have two things. By pure grace and by divine power. By grace, this man is set free from its bondage to sin and Satan. I want you to think about it with me for a moment. This man wasn't looking to be saved. Again, so under the control of the devil was this man that he wasn't crying out to God. For God to save him. In fact, at the direction of the demons, he was probably rushing toward Jesus to attack him. As I I tried to show you last week in verse 2. In in his bondage, this man was hostile to Jesus. He didn't want to be near Christ, but this is when Jesus goes to work and frees him anyway. He doesn't want to be near him, but that's when Jesus saves him. And and what has this demon-possessed man do to merit this intervention from Jesus? Nothing. Nothing. In fact, he's only merited Jesus to let him stay in this state. This man has done nothing in his life to earn anything good from the Son of God. He's a Gentile. He's a pagan. He has not worshipped Yahweh. He's not worshipped the God of Israel. He's a sinner who has devoted his life to worshipping false gods and sinning against the living God. He's done nothing To earn a kindness from Jesus. But here comes the Lord Jesus anyway. Here he comes anyway, full of mercy and full of grace to set this man free. Christian, I want you to see something very plainly here that I think we might be prone to forget. You were not searching for him. You were not searching for him. He came to you. While you were yet a sinner, while you were still in your sins and your depravity of mind and deeds of the flesh and hostility to Christ, he sought you out. As you were in the depths of your slavery and hostility to him, he came to you by grace alone. Raging against him as you did, he pursued you. And and when Jesus saved this man, when he set him free, I want you to see this. He did it all by himself, didn't he? No assistance was necessary, right? The the man contributed nothing to his liberation and redemption. He merely, what? Received what Jesus did for him. Jesus did it all. Jesus cast out the demons. Jesus set him free. And this man was a passive recipient of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus did not tell him in his enslaved state, go and do these things and then I'll save you go clean yourself up a little and then I'll save you. He didn't tell him, cast out one demon and I'll clean up the rest, right? I'll help you help yourself. That's not what Jesus did. This man would have been powerless to do anything good to begin with anyway. Rather, in pure grace, Jesus just acted on his behalf to save him. And this man passively received the work and benefits of Christ. This is what has happened to us Christian we have passively received Christ and all his saving benefits. We've received him by faith alone. We didn't work. We didn't assist him. We didn't merit anything from him. We received mercy from Jesus. That's all we did. We, we are the passive. He is the active. And Jesus did this by his divine power. And what I mean by that, what I want to highlight here is that Jesus was the only one who could save this man, isn't he? No one else could do it. They tried. This man doesn't really want to be saved. Jesus is the only one who can do this. Only the son of the most high God, God in the flesh, could free him from the power of the devil. So powerful is Satan that no human being can free himself. No human being can free himself from the clutches of Satan. Only Jesus can set them free because only God can save sinners. This is why it was necessary that our Redeemer be both man and God he had to be man that he might save men and he had to be God because only God can save there is only one hope for those in bondage to sin and Satan and it is a person his name is the Lord Jesus Christ Christian can you see yourself in this I, I hope you can if you can't you probably have some Pharisee glasses on right this is your story You were held captive to sin and Satan until the Lord Jesus Christ set you free. You weren't looking for him, but he came to you. He didn't ask you to assist him, but he did it all himself. And only he could have done it. You couldn't have saved yourself. Your sins are too great. God's standard is too high and holy. You've already ruined it by being born a sinner, and then your actual sins compound on top of that. And the power of the evil one is too much for you and I to have fought him off. You, we, have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person and work of Christ alone. Praise Him in your heart, Christian. sinner, look to Him for freedom. And this leads us to our third point, and that is the compassionate character of Jesus Christ. I love this. The compassionate character of Christ. Right? We see something here about our Savior, and I want you to remember the twin themes of Mark are, one, who is Jesus? And then second, what does it mean to be a disciple? But who is Jesus? Last week we saw he is the one, he's the son of the most high God, who is to be feared by angels, demons, and men. But this week we see that he is most compassionate. I want you to see something about your savior. He has mercy on sinners and he has come to save them. This is Jesus. Last week, that's Jesus too this is Jesus as well and I don't want us to get an unbalanced view of him and highlight one aspect of him at the expense of another he's merciful consider this with me this blew my mind to think about it so thank you Steve Lawson because I didn't see this Uh, this whole event is just one day right Jesus is only in this region for one day maybe only a few hours we don't know right but calms the storm on the Sea of Galilee gets out of the boat heals the possessed man, and then gets back in the boat. Read the end of the passage, verse 18, I think. And he was getting back in the boat. This is the same day. Again, maybe just a few hours. Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee, calmed a storm, got to this region, so that he could free just one man. And then he left. The whole narrative came about, this whole... Story: the crossing of the Sea of Galilee, the disciples being terrified. All of this came about because Jesus desired to save one man. This shows you the great lengths to which Jesus was willing to go to save his people, doesn't it? This story is the gospel in microcosm. It's a small picture of what Christ came to Earth to do, and that is to save his people from their sins and their bondage to the tyranny of Satan. That's what this picture. It's a picture of that. So compassionate and merciful is the Lord Jesus. Again, so now to look at it in macrocosm, the big gospel. So compassionate and merciful is Christ that he took on flesh and took a human nature to himself. He he left heaven and took a human body so that he could die. That's why he became a human, that he might die. So that he could, in place of sinful men, offer himself as a substitute and sacrifice for them in their place. So that they might be set free. He willingly offered himself on a cross and suffered God's wrath that his people deserved for their sins. And he did this to satisfy God's wrath so that they could be forgiven, washed clean, liberated from sin and Satan, and made into new people. That is to say, there was nothing too great for him to do. There was no price too high that he was not willing to pay in order to save his people from their sins. In order to set us free from our bondage to Satan. There are none like him. There are none like him. With this demon-possessed man, people around him saw a problem to be avoided, a lunatic, someone who is too far gone to be reached. But what did Christ see? He saw a man in need of salvation. He saw one of his own lost sheep that needed to be brought into the fold. Where everyone saw a hopeless case, he saw one of his own suffering under the dominion of the devil, so he set him free. As much as he is to be feared, he is to be adored. He is to be loved. (laughs) Who, Who does this stuff for the people who sin against them? I'm serious. You can't make this God up. There are none like him. He is the great lover and savior of sinners. He can and does set sinners free and he makes them new by grace because this is the character of your Lord. But quickly now, I want to point out the change in the formerly possessed man. This man has been converted. I think verse 15 tells us this much. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. This is a radical change in this man. I might go back to this next week. I've not decided that. But let me just list some of these changes briefly for you. This man went from insane to sane, from naked to clothed, from ferocious to tame, from walking among the dead to being seated with Christ. But the big one is found in Luke, in Luke chapter 8, the parallel account in Luke. Luke says that this man was seated at Christ's feet. That's the posture of discipleship. He now wants to learn from the one who has set him free. The man who was hostile to Jesus and under the direction of Satan wanted to attack him now wants to learn from him. As we'll see next week, everyone else begged Jesus to go away and begged him not to hurt begged them not to hurt them the demons did, but this man begs Jesus that he might be with him. His desires have changed. He's been set free. He now wants to do that which pleases God and God has given him the will and the ability to do it because he's been set free by the Lord Jesus Christ. This man has been converted. He has been made new. As Paul tells us, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This man has radically changed because Christ has shown him mercy and in grace has set him free. The, the the man who seemed like the most hopeless case in the world now is full of hope and peace with God. The, the one that most wrote off, or rather, the one who most wrote off as being as good as dead and damned is now alive in Christ and saved. This, brothers and sisters, is the power of the Lord Jesus. He can take a dead man and make him alive. He can take a slave and make him a free man. He can take a sinner and make him a son of God. Nobody is hopeless so long as Jesus is still king, and he is king forever. So there is always hope for even the most desperate sinner in the depths of slavery. Jesus is the savior of hopeless cases. He is in the business of freeing slaves, and he is the best in his field. Those who seem hopeless aren't so hopeless anymore once Jesus sets his eye of redeeming love on them. That's good news. He is a mighty savior and all the power of hell is no match for him. He can and will rescue his people from the tyranny of Satan. So know this for a certainty. Nobody is too far gone that Jesus cannot reach them. We need to hear this. Christian, maybe you need to hear this because you find yourself, you're thinking, I'm I'm such a screw up. And you are, right? Like I'm not here to make you feel better about your sin, Right? Or, man, there's no way that I can be forgiven for what I've done, or there's no way that I can be set free from this besetting habitual sin. Right? Maybe that's you, or maybe it's you doubt the power of Christ to be able to forgive you for some past sin that you've committed. Like, maybe Jesus can redeem someone else, but no, he can't redeem me. I know there are people here who deal with assurance issues. You always wonder whether or not you're actually saved. Listen to me. No one is too far gone that Jesus can't reach them. No case is too desperate, no sinner is too wretched, no man is too unclean, no slave has too heavy shackles that Christ cannot stretch forth his mighty arm and rescue them. So rejoice, even you can be saved. You too can be saved. You have not sunk so low that Christ can't forgive you and make you new if you look to him in faith. Christ was crucified and suffered God's wrath and was raised from the dead in order to save sinners. This means that his blood can wash clean even the deepest and dirtiest stains of sin. His righteousness can make even the most vile sinner righteous in the eyes of God. And his divine power can break the bonds of slavery to the devil. He can do it. And he will do it. For all who look to him in faith, believing that he can and believing that he will. Know that for yourself. Take hope in that for yourself. And if you've never had a moment of despair like that where you wonder, can I be saved? Think about your own sin a little bit more, but then rejoice in the fact that even you can be saved. This is good news. But to be more practical with our application, and this smacked me really hard uh, as I thought about this this week. We ought not forget this truth when we look at other people as well. You can't forget this truth that no one is too hopeless or too far gone that Christ cannot save them. You can't forget this truth even when you look at those who you may think are too wicked or too unclean to be saved. Whenever you look at homosexuals or transgender people, abortionists, warmongers, adulterers, terrorists, sex offenders, drug addicts, alcoholics, murderers, I have in mind the two people who were just convicted of murdering their own child. Whoever it might be in your mind who seems to be too far gone and too wicked to be saved, I want you to remember this possessed man with a legion of demons. He seemed like he was too far gone, but not for Christ. Just hear me on this, and I'm not saying that justice shouldn't be done. Those, those two people who are convicted should receive the capital, capital punishment. But what other religion says that they can go to heaven? What other religion says God can forgive them? Only this one. Because Christ is such a mighty Savior that He can make even the vilest sinner clean. There's no king like our King. He can and will save all He desires to save. And we don't know who the elect are, do we? Right? And if you've got that figured out, please show me the Bible passage where you learned that one. right? So we pray for sinners, and we reach out to them, and we preach to them in love and hope and expectation, knowing that none are too far gone for Christ to reach down and save them. So hear me out, please. I'm going to slice you for a second. If you sincerely believe that someone is too wicked or sinful to be saved, regardless of what they've done, if you believe that, then you are fundamentally denying the gospel. You are blaspheming the power of Christ. You're making little of his sacrifice, and you're mocking his cross. If we understood the power of Christ to save sinners, we would never write someone off as hopeless. If we really understood Jesus, we would never let it slip into our hearts, the thought that someone can't be saved if they're not worth engaging for the sake of the gospel. Look around at this church. Seated among us when we're here in full strength are former God-hating, blaspheming atheists, a former homosexual, former devotees of false religion, adulterers, uh, former adulterers, uh, former fornicators, former drug addicts, and former self-righteous hypocrites. And that's just this church. That's just us. That's not taking into account the worldwide church of those who Christ has redeemed. Who are we as those who have known the tyranny of Satan, the depths of sin and depravity, and yet have been rescued by our gracious liberating savior? Who are we to ever say that someone is beyond the saving arm of Christ? That's foolishness. And that's a denial of your own salvation. So hear me, if that's in your heart at all, you need to repent. You need to repent and behold Christ and all of his saving glory in this passage. Because if you get a real good look at him, if we get a real good look at him and his power to save, we will never think that way again. None are hopeless so long as Christ is still saving sinners and he is still saving sinners, so take hope. Take hope for yourself and take hope for others because his grace is sufficient and his power is unending. So there is hope for the hopeless. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we thank you for the great mercy that's found in our Lord Jesus. Father, that you loved us, that you loved your people so much that you would send your Son to die for us. Lord help us to de- never never to deny his saving power. Lord, I ask that you would teach us to hope in him for ourselves. Teach us to hope in him for others. And Lord, I ask that that you would protect us from having a self-righteous, pharisaical heart. Lord, let us never forget for one second that we were no better off than the man possessed with a legion of demons, and yet Christ saved us, and if he can save us. Lord Jesus, if you can save us, we know you can save anybody. And we pray that you would do so. Keep these truths ever present on our hearts. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.